Today's episode is brought to you by No Boring Design. Wow, what a name. No, we know this team well. We've brought them in to help with a number of engagements when design becomes a bottleneck for shipping campaigns quickly. Uh, also when design is boring, right? A lot of B2B status quo becomes boring and it doesn't have to be. So we bring this team in, they level up the quality design and they remove design as a bottleneck to ship campaigns, content, product marketing assets, you name it. If it needs a design and you're hung up on it, this team can help. Um, somehow they managed to do this. I think their price point starting out is 2,500 a month. Uh, obviously goes up from there, but what a great resource. We've seen them firsthand do great work with Dropbox, Yelp, a number of our big clients they've been a part of. So check them out, noboringdesign.com, noboringdesign.com. Welcome to season three of Best in SaaS, where we talk through patterns and playbooks in the revenue sprint to 100 million in ARR and beyond with the industry's most accomplished executives, entrepreneurs, and investors. Season three is brought to you by Chargebee. Chargebee helps SaaS businesses of all sizes maximize their growth potential and revenue with a leading global subscription management platform that delivers fast time to value plus exceptional service and support. Learn more at chargebee.com. All right. So today, Seema Kumar, really excited to have you on the show. You are currently the CMO at uh, New Relic, but I mean, you rose up through the ranks in Salesforce and you've been with a bunch of great companies, very quick to rise to CMO of a public company. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Elias. It's so great to be here. So why don't we start with, I know a little bit about you in the sense that I know you weren't always a marketer Mm -hmm. and that you transitioned into marketing and then very quickly marketing leadership at the highest level pretty quickly. Can like walk us through that story? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the thing that has always guided me in my career is learning. I'm very motivated by what I'm learning and what opportunities a career or opportunity creates for me to learn something. And so when I look back over my career, um, you know, I, I always think about what did I learn? If I'm evaluating a new opportunity, it's what am I going to learn that I don't already know? You know, so I have a computer science degree from University of Illinois. And, um, you know, most CMOs don't have that. And it's been a long time since I've written code, Elias, but what uh, what an engineering degree taught me was how to take a really big, complicated problem and how to break it down into smaller components that you can then work on or you can delegate um, or you can outsource. And, you know, I use that in my work every single day, learning how to do that, right? Um, and then my first role out of college was at Intel, and I joined a sales uh, a sales kind of leadership program, if you will, where they hired technical people and put them in sales. And um, I was in a division of Intel, and I was the number one salesperson worldwide. Oh. Uh, I was 22 years old at the time. My <laughs> percent performance to quota was over 300%, and it was because I focused so much on customers and what they needed. And so what I learned from my time at Intel was how to be customer-obsessed how to really think all day, every day about what customers need. Um, Then I went up to business school. And then after business school, I went to a management consulting company called Bain & Company. And at Bain, um, there were two critical things that I learned. Um, One was I learned how to learn. And I think that is so important because 
There, the world is changing so rapidly. There are so many new things. Nobody was talking about crypto a few years ago and sort of, the, I mean, people were in very small groups, but now everyone's talking about crypto. Now we're talking about NFTs. There's all this new stuff, even in marketing, there's constantly new parts of the marketing technology stack, new ways of doing demand generation. You have to constantly be learning and be willing to say, hey, I don't think I know everything. And so at Bain, you know, every few months, you're handed a new client in a new industry with a new problem, a new strategy. Strategy. And so I learned how to just devour information and how to develop a system for learning because you don't have all the hours in the day and you've got to be really thoughtful about how you spend your time. The second thing I learned at Bain & Company was, and I'm, I'm amazed how many people lack this skill set, how to create a narrative for an executive team to present to them the right level of information, the right type of information to tee up a decision that you need made. And one that has a, a clear narrative that tells a story so that, you know, before you get to slide 14, the civil person goes, I know what we should do. We should do X. And you go to slide 14 and you're like, funny, you should say that. Right. That is a skill that a lot of people I have found don't have. And it is so critical to being successful and effective. After Bain & Company, I went to a consumer company called Slide. Slide was run by Keith, sorry, Max Levchin, and I worked for Keith Raboy, two amazingly brilliant product people. And um, this was, you know, in the early days of the Facebook platform. And um, I was a product manager for an app called uh, Top Friends, which was a top five Facebook app at the time. And I, you know, I had the good fortune of, you know, every week, every other week, getting to sit down with Max over coffee or lunch and pick his brain and learn from him about product. And so what I learned to do there was how to be incredibly agile and adaptable because these were the days when Facebook was changing their platform and they'd open up some new way that you could acquire customers. And then a month or two later, they'd realize they were spamming people and they'd shut it back down. But you had to be on it. You had to be looking for those changes in the platform. You had to be you know, looking for ways to test and iterate. And so we would come up with these ideas. You know, We'd go to coffee, we'd talk about these ideas, we'd um, get them published the next day. And then you could see your, an impact on your product within a couple of days. And it's very similar to what we do in demand generation these days, right? We are constantly looking for new channels of optimization. You're tweaking things, you're optimizing things, you're looking at the data and trying to drive insights out of the data. And so that was what I really learned at Slide. After Slide, I went to Salesforce and I spent four, uh, eight years at Salesforce, the first four in product management and the next four in marketing. And um, I learned many, many things at Salesforce. I would say in particular how to do great marketing really well. But you know, the, I think the one that really stands out for me is um, in my last couple of years there, I launched a new business line for Salesforce called Salesforce Shield. And it was a set of um, security and compliance products, encryption at rest, data audit trails, and um, event log files, um, pretty technical stuff. And we were selling and marketing those to a pretty technical audience. And what I learned through the process of doing that was that if you, if you can talk about an, a product in a way that is very technical and factual so that you have credibility with your audience, but also put a story around it because everyone's human. Everybody has emotions. Everybody wants to buy something they're excited about. You can be immensely successful. And we grew that product from zero to $100 million in a very short period of time. It was the fastest that Salesforce had ever gotten a, a SKU or product line to $100 million. 
And um, Gartner had published a note saying that that product line raised the ASPs, the average selling prices of Salesforce, just like single-handedly. Um, and it was a huge success because we found a way to be clear and factual um, and direct in our messaging, but also weave together this story and this narrative. So that's how I ended up here. Wow. So, I mean, we can see the, the trend line heading, heading in this direction of a technical audience, technical product. And there's, of course, this kind of myth. Well, some people don't think it's a myth. Some people do that technical audience developers aren't great to market to. They don't want to be marketed to. And I, I happen to know you have some strong opinions on that topic. So uh, what have you learned along the way when it comes to that age-old debate? Yeah, I, you know, so it's it's funny to me that people say developers don't like to be marketed to because it, it tells me, and, and this is a problem, I think a common problem in Silicon Valley, we tend to be very um, narrow in our time horizon and very sort of short-term focused. And we just kind of look at like the last 10 years. If you go back in time, um, Apple has been marketing to developers forever. Microsoft has been marketing to developers forever. Uh, Borland was a company in the 80s that sold developer tools and was immensely successful in the 80s. And they sold to developers, right? So, you know, there are people who say, oh, you know, the, the um, you know, business to developer segment is so new and now we're marketing developers. And it's it's been around for a really long time. Um, and if, you know, one of the favorite anecdotes that I have is WWDC. And it's Apple's annual developer conference and developers fly from all over the world. They spend money out of their own pocket. They spend thousands of dollars. They um, fly, they stay in hotels, they stand in line for the keynote for hours, drinking bad conference coffee, you know, waiting for the keynote. Um, but they come because they want to hear directly from Apple. They get to meet with the engineers that are working on Apple products um, and so to me, that's just an example um, of, you know, it's proof that developers, um, it's not that they don't want to be marketed to. I like to say they just don't like bad marketing. They have a higher <laughs> bar. They have a higher expectation. Yeah, we had we had this really talented leader on our team and she was the head of marketing for Heroku at one point in time. And she had the same kind of lens on it. She's like, have you ever been to a developer event? Like they love it. They're obsessed. Yeah. They're it's so engaged. So yeah. They really are. They just, I think they just have, you know, a different set of expectations and they have a set of expectations that I think is actually becoming more common. And I, th I think we're going to start to see these same expectations be held by other knowledge workers. I kind of think developers are leading the way in that sense. But <laughs> that person that you were talking to is absolutely, Heroku is a great example of a company that did phenomenal developer marketing. And as a result, you know, had this huge acquisition by Salesforce. Right. So um, how, as a, as a marketing leader, how do you insert cues for yourself and for your team such that you're able to make sure that you're staying in touch with that and make sure that you're able to, like, how, how do you know when you're shipping good marketing to developers and, and are really speaking in the way that they want to be spoken to? I think you have to have a lot of people in your organization who are current developers and former developers is one thing. So, you know, one of the things that I've learned about developer marketing, and, and again, I think this is going to be true of every professional, the type of marketing that they're going to expect, developers want to hear from marketers, sorry, from developers. They don't want to hear from marketers. Yes. So a developer wants to hear from somebody else who does what they do and they experience the same pains that that other person does. As a CMO, if I'm looking at buying a P 
piece of marketing technology, I want to hear about it from another marketer. I don't want to hear about it from a salesperson or product person. I want to hear about it from a person who lives and breathes my pain, who knows what happens at the end of the quarter if they didn't deliver enough pipeline or if they delivered enough pipeline, but but sales still didn't hit their number. I want to meet with somebody else who feels that pain. And developers are no different. They want to hear from somebody else who actually understands what it's like when they can't get two two tools to integrate or when they ship a bug in production and they wake up their whole team at three o'clock in the morning. They want to hear it from other people who are like them. And um, and so, you know, I make it a real point to hire people who have those technical backgrounds. So a lot of people in my marketing organization have engineering degrees or, um, you know, they were developers. We've created a developer relations team in our organization. And um, we don't ship anything. When I say ship, I'm talking about like a marketing program or a media campaign um, copy, swag even, we don't ship anything without running it by some of the members on our developers relations team or some of our own developers internally, right? We, we have close to a thousand people in our organization who are developers. Um, and so we just kind of do little mini focus groups and just say like, hey, what do you think? Is this going to resonate? And we did that just last week. We had a media campaign that was about to go live and uh, I shouldn't say about to go live. Like the team had um, proposed it for review. And I looked at it and I was like, ah, we're missing something. This just, this isn't quite right. Something isn't right here. And so we ran it by a handful of people in our developer relations team and some other developers. And now I cannot wait for that to campaign to go live because the lines are just so much more like on the nose, right? They're really nuanced. They really get at what developers struggle with. And so, um, you know, for me, the way I do it is making sure we're hiring developers and then kind of having that pocket board of developer directors in your pocket that you can always go to. It's amazing. You can see the maturity in organizations when they really have a, not only can, can represent the voice of the customer, but have a system for making sure that that is well represented and nothing goes live. So that's, that's really cool to hear about. All right. So before we get onto the second half of this episode, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our close friends over at Mattermade. For those of you who don't know them, Mattermade helps some of the fastest growing B2B SaaS companies drive revenue as an extension of their marketing teams. We're talking companies like Dropbox, Calm, Loom, Product Board, and many others who trust Mattermade to help them drive their marketing and demand gen initiatives. You can check out their seemingly endless supply of case studies over at mattermade.co. Now let's get back to the episode. I'm curious, I mean, you're relatively air quotes new to New Relic. Um, what you know, you, you can call on a, a, a big tool chest, I'm sure, at this point of strategies and tactics that are yours and, and that you, you know, trust in and have had experience with. What, what are some of the kind of top of mind tools that you called upon when you're first getting ramped up at New Relic? Tools um, specifically, do you mean for targeting developers or? I don't mean so much as like MarTech. I mean more so like some of the strategies and, and playbooks that are near and dear to your heart that in this case, yes, for, for developers. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that's really important for me as a leader is, is knowing that I don't know it all. And in fact, I probably don't know all that much at all. And so one of the most important playbooks for me as a leader is hiring um, or building the absolute best possible team that I can. And, you know, odds are that 
um, you know, if you build the right team that, you, you know, somebody in your organization has the answer and knows what to do. And so like one thing that I invested in doing quite quickly was um, building the right team of people in the marketing organization at New Relic. I, I place a very high emphasis on having the best talent that we can possibly have. Um, second thing that I do that's super important to me is creating a culture where people feel psychologically safe and they, um, if they have an idea, they feel that it's safe to voice it. If they feel that something the organization is doing is suboptimal, that they feel safe voicing it and they think it'll be heard and not just voicing it, but like that somebody's actually going to listen to them and actually act on what they say. Um, and I think you do that by, you know, by role modeling and by demonstrating that you don't have all the answers. Um, and then I think a third one that I've relied on for a long time is, is leading with vulnerability. Um, you know, on Friday, our, um, our nanny couldn't be available. And so I took the day off and I, I posted in our team Slack channel. Of, it's a very large Slack channel. I was like, hey, I'm, I'm on childcare duty today. I'm, I can't respond to stuff. So, you know, I'll see you guys on Monday. And I did that on purpose because I know that so many people, especially during this pandemic, um, are dealing with those kinds of situations. And, and by the way, like we, our fiscal year ended last week. And so like, you know, we've got sales kickoff happening next week. Like this is not the best time for me to be out for a day, but this is just life. This is reality. I don't have control over that. And so I did that intentionally because I really want to set um, an example for folks that I can't always decide to prioritize work and life just comes up for me too. And there are days I just have to, you know, focus on other things. And so like being vulnerable as a leader and showing folks that I, I too am human and I too am struggling with these things um, is a really important um, way I work as a leader. I'm curious to uh, like unpack the topic of DE&I a little bit. Uh, obviously it's something that the Valley struggles with historically uh, and something our country struggles with, frankly. Um, how, you know, and you're now in a position, you have been for a while in a position of, of power and, and influence. How do you think about that topic broadly and, and how does that impact your work? I, I agree so much with what you just said that I'm in a position of power to influence what we do with DE&I. And I, I take that responsibility very seriously. And I'll be honest, it's one of the reasons that I love that I'm in the position that I have, I am in because I feel like I'm in a position to really impact that. Um, I, I personally interview every single person that we hire in the marketing org. That's a lot of interviews for me to do, but I do it because it's really important to me to to be sure that we're hiring the right people. And um, I meet with our recruiting team on a weekly basis, and I expect to see a certain number of diverse candidates for every role that we are hiring for, not just up to a certain level, which is, you know, what's, what happens in some organizations, but literally for every single role, I want to see a certain number of candidates that are diverse. Um, you know, I've, I've hired a few, a fair number of direct members of my exec staff. And um, when I worked with exec recruiters for those roles, um, you know, there was one role in particular where I said, I only want to see diverse candidates. Don't bring me anybody who does not fit the following definitions of diversity. I'm just not, not interested. Um, and it's funny when you, when you make that requirement, all of a sudden they find you diverse <laughs> candidates that they couldn't find before. Um, and it, it made a huge difference. 
I've also put together a DEI plan for marketing specifically. And some of the things that I have um, I have put into our plan for this year are that I'm expecting all of my direct staff members to build relationships with diverse candidates whom we might at some point in the future hire. So for example, let's say you are the SVP of corporate marketing who reports to me, let's say maybe right now you don't have any open roles on your team, which is not the case, we, have, we do. Um, I am expecting that person to cultivate relationships with two diverse individuals who at some point might become people that we might hire. They also might not, but at least that way we are building our own candidate pipeline of diverse individuals. Um, and that's an expectation that I have with them. And I'm going to talk to them on a monthly basis about how they're doing building that pipeline. And I'm expecting them to engage with these candidates on a regular basis. Um, another thing that I am doing for my team right now is every, so um, we have decided this year, Elias, to focus on individuals who are, who are, who identify as, as Black or Latina, Latino. We've, we feel that we've made a lot of progress with women and other sort of underrepresented minorities. And so we know if you want to get something done, you've really got to have focus, right? And so we've decided to focus on these two populations. Um, and so any members of our entire marketing organization who fall into one of those two categories or identifies them, um, I'm going to be assigning a mentor on my executive staff um, to meet with them on a monthly basis because I want to make sure that they're getting the coaching and the um, support they need or even just the access, right? Sometimes it's just about not having access and I want to make sure that they're having, that they have access. Um, so those are some of the, some of the things that I am personally doing to impact DE&I right now. And um, I absolutely see it as a great responsibility and frankly, a great privilege to be able to have that kind of impact. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 amazing. I think there are a lot of founders and executives who are probably listening to this episode, thinking through how they can implement some of those things themselves. I love the access idea. What what would you say, or or what do you say to some of these earlier stage companies? I know it's you know the cultural the culture in the valley tends to be can be growth at all costs, and it can be you know, we just need to grow now. We just need to bring talented people in, and we'll figure these other things out later. And DE and I, if we were having a, a, a candid conversation with, I think many folks would say it ends up getting pushed into a nice to have bucket instead of yep. a need to have bucket. Do you have any advice for some of these earlier companies who are just starting to form their culture and just starting to form their processes, how they might reframe that and make it a need to have or, or prioritize it as something that doesn't have to wait until down the road? Well, I think they won't reframe it until they view DE&I as being critical to their success and critical to their growth, right? I mean, if they, if people continue to view it as like, oh, it's a thing that we should do, then right. there, and I, then there is no advice that I can give them, right? Go read. There's so much data out there about the impact of diversity on corporate profits and success, and so if you believe that data which I do, then you have to build it in from the beginning. I mean, it's kind of like saying um, culture is a nice to have. We'll work on right. culture later once we hit, you know, once we get to 10 million or 100 million or we raise our C round, then we'll focus on culture. You're never going to get there if you don't build a great culture. Um, and so I don't think that you can afford to wait. And I am hopeful that um, candidates these days 
will vote with their feet. I'm seeing that more and more that people are voting with their feet if they're not finding that companies are prioritizing it. Completely. I love that power shift too. Um, you, you are at, to many folks, I'm sure to you, there's, there's room to grow, but to many folks, you're at the very top of industry. What do you do to find balance for yourself? I focus a lot on, well, first of all, I want to say, I don't think there is balance, honestly. I really don't. I think, you know, um, I remember I had a boss when I was at Intel, my first job at a college, and he he said, you know, Seema, there are some days I feel like everyone at work is really happy, but my um, my spouse and my children are unhappy with me because they're not getting enough of my time. And then there are other days where my spouse and my children are really happy because they're getting enough Charlie time. And, you know, I feel like I'm just doing an okay job at work. And I actually, I feel like that's the truth. Like I don't, I think this concept of balance or work-life balance is just a misnomer. And so I think we're all like, I got to get balance. I got to get balance. I don't think there is balance. Um, so what I focus on doing is um, building capacity. I'm a huge believer in the idea of, of capacity building so that when things happen, because they do all the time, things run late, things run over budget, somebody resigns, you don't close that candidate, that account attrits. Um, that you are able to um, adapt in the moment and get not get so emotionally caught up because when you get emotionally caught up, it's very draining. It drains all of your energy. Um, and so, you know, a couple of things I do for capacity building is I'm a huge believer now in meditation. I was not for the longest time. Um, and uh, it, it was a little bit, I think the way that people feel about eating their broccoli, like I was just like, ah, I don't want to do it. I don't like it. It sucks. Um, and I finally started and committed and it is something I really look forward to every day because it's like, you know, with a three and a five-year-old, there aren't a lot of moments of peace in my life. And that is some of the time that I get to have peace. And it truly does build capacity in the days that I do it, you know, something happens and I'm like, okay, deep breath, like this too shall pass. Um, and the other thing that really helps me with capacity building is exercise. Um, I love lifting weights. I've become a big, uh, a big weightlifter and I just love doing it. Like it makes me feel powerful. Like, you know, you, you go deadlift some weight or you, you know, you, you chest press and like, you just, you feel strong and powerful. And then something happens and you're like, meh, you know, it's just not that big a deal. Um, but of course, you know, there are, I'm not, I'm not invincible. There are still lots of things that, um, get me worked up for sure. And, um, you know, when that happens, um, I'm currently in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I've got the mountains and beautiful temperate rainforest just five minutes outside my door. And so I get out in nature and I go for a hike. And, um, you know, when something's blowing up at work or, you know, my kids are having a meltdown or my husband and I had a fight and I walk past a 1200 year old Western red cedar tree that provided food, medicine, clothing, and canoes for the First Nations up here in Canada, whatever it was that blew up at work just doesn't seem like that big of a deal anymore. Context. Context is everything. Yeah. I love that. I, I've, I've often thought about uh, the power of sport and um, in all forms, really. But I think for folks like us who are operating at such a high frequency and and just a lot going on. Sometimes it's also nice to create, for me at least personally, micro wins. You know, like some some of the things you're working on are, are much longer term and you have to kind of wait and see how things go. Whereas, you know, if you go into the gym and pick up some weights, like 
you picked up the weights, you did it, you, know, you completed your reps or whatever. And it sounds so simple, but I think there's something really powerful in having these little wins built into your day where you know you can reliably do something that goes really well that day. Love that micro wins. That's real. That's great. I think I'm going to start using that with my team because you're right. <laughs> so many of the projects that we're working on can be 12 months in duration before you start to see the actual return. And so you really do need to find those micro moments and micro wins. I like that. Well, Seema, this was a really fun conversation. I, I'm glad we took the time to, to dig in some of this and really excited to see what great work you do at uh, New Relic. Thank you, Elias. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun.